Mark 8, covering, you know, three different blocks of text, looking 1 through 21, we, we have to kind of keep in mind the context of the book and also the context at the time of the writing. Now, the reason that, and, and we've gone over this again and again and again and again, and, and it's important to recall and to remember the context of the book of Mark um, because it gives us insight into Mark's writing and the way that he writes this. What Mark is seeking to do when he writes the book of uh, the book here, when he when he puts together his gospel, is to to set straight the story of who Jesus was, to tell the story of the real Jesus, to tell accurately through eyewitness account who Jesus claimed to be, who he was, and how he demonstrated it. And so this morning we kind of see a very similar account that not only. Um, that not only uh, demonstrates Mark's purpose in, in understanding who, uh, the importance of understanding who Jesus is rightly, but we understand this passage in that context as well. We, we see it in the story, the, the idea of unbelief, but we also, we also have this as our context. It's the subtext to the book of Mark. It's this idea of unbelief, of, of the people that Jesus is with, you know, you you can't always assume that those people know him. They're not necessarily in his in his inner circle. And Mark has this theme that he uses often of those who are insiders and those who are outsiders. And, and as we've gone through the book of Mark, that we've seen that those who are who would appear to be outside of the social uh, class, those who would be outside of culture in the city, those who are who are. Um, sick or weak or wounded, those are people who are most often near to Jesus. And those who would appear to be a part of the, who you would assume would be a part of the, the inner circle, those like the highly religious people, they're seen as outsiders in the book of Mark. They're, they are seen apart from Jesus. And so that's our context coming into these three little uh, chunks of text this morning. As we look at the, the first section we look at is this secondary story of the feeding of 4,000. So it starts off in, in verses one, or in verse one here. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, "I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat." And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. So Jesus is here. He is in Gentile territory on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's been teaching this group of multitudes, this crowd that has been around him. And in the Gentile territories, Jesus has found more acceptance than he has in, in the Jewish territories. Those in those Gentile lands are more often to receive him, to not come against him, but to receive him. And, and he, has fa- he has gathered a large crowd. He, they've been with him for three days, it says, as he's been teaching. And so he calls the disciples to him. And, and th- this basically here, it's it's reminiscent of a passage that we looked at just you know a couple weeks ago, the feeding of the five thousand. And during the feeding of the five thousand, Jesus, he, well, we'll kind of get into this a little bit later, but he demonstrates to them uh, the richness of Israel's history in the way that he feeds them. Now, we're going to see it a little bit differently here in the passage this morning. And, and what he does here is he calls his disciples to him, and it's, he tells them, I have compassion upon the crowd. Now, the way that he says this, the way that, the way that he uses the, the, the wording there, the original language, he uses it in a way that communicates um, how deeply he hurts for them. The, the actual language means like his guts hurt, his inner bowels. They, they are, it's like a gut-wrenching feeling how much he cares and loves them. He, he tells the disciples, I have compassion upon the crowd. The word, though, that he uses there, it's not, you would think, it's not used of those who are close you know, when you talk about having compassion upon people, Jesus doesn't use it to those who are in his inner circle, but he most frequently uses those who are outsiders. He, he hurts 
deeply. He has compassion upon those who are outside. He uses it in uh, in chapter one of lepers. In chapter six, he uses it of of those who he fed at the at the feeding of the five thousand. He has that compassion of those who are who are outside revolutionaries, those who wanted to take over uh, the the kingdom. There in verses uh, or here, here in uh, chapter eight, he has it upon this group of Gentiles, and then later we'll see in in chapter 9, he has this similar compassion upon the demon-possessed there. Now, he, it's interesting because Jesus doesn't use this upon this, this deep hurt feeling upon those that you would think that it would be used upon, those who you would naturally care about most, like friends and family, but it's used of those who would be uh, outsiders. Now, why does he have compassion on them? He, he says they've been with him for three days. It's a long time to, to be with somebody teaching, you know, following them through the wilderness. They have nothing to eat, and they've come a really long way. It, they've, they've traveled a great distance. As Jesus has moved, the crowd has moved with them. And, and from the, the passage here, we know that there's about 4,000 people. And so they're to the point of weakness where if they went home, they would just faint along the way. And so what Jesus does is he calls the disciples to them and says, I have compassion upon them. Now, here's what the disciples do in verse four. They answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So Jesus clearly wants to feed these people. He has a plan. He has compassion upon them. He wants, he sees their need. He wants to meet their need, but it appears that that the disciples are dragging their feet on this. It's the, they, they don't come back, you know, and say, okay, we've done this before. Let's do this. We know how you're going to work this. They, they just come back with, how can one feed these people out here in this desolate place? Here's why it's, they're dragging their feet. The first time that at the feeding of the 5,000, it was a 5,000 men, you know, plus there were families with them, but in the, in the account of the feeding of 5,000, they only notate men. So there was probably, you know, somewhere in the range between uh, 12,000 to 20,000 people there because people had their families with them. At the feeding of the 5,000, that was a group of Jews. But here, at the feeding of the 4,000, complete number of 4,000 people, including all, you know, the families. These, this is a group of Gentiles. So when it's the, the disciples' own people, they're quick, you know, notice they're the ones that came to Jesus in that first passage at the feeding of 5,000. Oh, Jesus, after one day, the people are, they're hungry. What should we do? You know, let's send them out into the city. But here, three days have gone by, and it's just crickets from the disciples, like nothing. Just quiet. We're okay. We're just with Jesus. And here, Jesus has to take the initiative. He has to come and to tell them, I have compassion upon these people. I care about these people. It's Jesus who cares for the crowd. Now, a lot of people have thought that, um, you know, a lot of commentators have thought that this passage could be uh, a duplication of Mark. He, He kind of says the same thing again. He gives the you know, a very similar story to the feeding of the 5,000. But Mark, it, it would, those people, I would think they appear to be mistaken because they missed the whole point of the passage. The whole point is not that Jesus feeds people, but the point of our passage this morning is to show that the disciples, they don't get it. There's unbelief that resides within them. Mark is deliberately showing us the dullness of heart that the disciples have. He's showing us that, that even though they've seen a previous miracle, here they still don't get who Jesus is. They still don't understand. And so the disciples answer him and say, how can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now in verse 5, he goes on, and Jesus asks them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that they should also be set before them. So again here, in our passage, much like the feeding of the 5,000, 
The disciples, they complain about what they lack. It's like, how can we even do this? But what Jesus does, he focuses on what they possess, what they have. And where the disciples see things to be impossible, Jesus sees possibilities there. The problem is, is that the disciples don't recognize that, you know, it's quite obvious that they do not possess enough bread for the people. They have seven loaves, but what they don't recognize is what they do possess. Not seven loaves, but they possess Jesus with them. He's the answer, not the seven loaves. And so what happens here is, in the account, it's, an, it's nearly identical to the previous uh, account in the feeding of the 5,000, but with a few small changes. This time it's with Gentiles, and you know it's not as strict with, um, with the structure. Because we keep in mind here that Mark is writing to a Gentile readership in Rome. He's writing to, to, to demonstrate who Jesus was to a Gentile readership. And so in our account, Jesus provides over um, the mass meal, just like he does at the feeding of the 5,000. He, he does it in a very similar way that would reflect, as we looked at in that, in that earlier account, it would reflect the similar structure of the Last Supper. He holds true to this model that he previously established there. It says that he took the loaves, just like he did it in the feeding of the 5,000. He gave thanks. He broke them. He gave them to the disciples. And this is the same model that he used again at the Last Supper. When he's with the disciples at Passover, he takes the loaves. He gives thanks. He breaks them. He distributes to the disciples. Now, Jesus celebrated that Last Supper with his disciples at Passover. And at Passover, it was a time when Jews would remember, especially in the Passover uh, meal, in that, in that uh, Last Supper that they would be having, Jews would remember the way that God had provided manna in the wilderness out of nothing. And here, in that very same way, Jesus is providing out of nothing. He is calling to mind, not to this Gentile group of people, but this speaks volumes to the readership that's in Rome. This speaks volumes to them of the Last Supper, when there was nothing to satisfy the hunger of the people of God in the wilderness, God provided for his people. And here, Jesus reminds the Gentile readers, you know, as Mark is recasting them, or is seeking to demonstrate who Jesus was, he's reminding him that Jesus provides for the needs of the Gentiles as well. Through that last supper, as they, as they see here in the same model, in the same phrasing that Jesus takes the bread, he, he, he takes it, he receives it, he, he says a blessing, he breaks it and distributes to his disciples. It would call to mind in that reader of the book of Mark, of their inclusion into uh, the kingdom of God. Now it says in verse 8, they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Now Jesus responds to, really here, with his action, Jesus responds to the disciples' question in verse 4. In verse 4, the disciples ask, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate place? In this text here, Jesus gives us the answer through his action. He demonstrates that you can't, only I can. No one can. No one can do this, but only I can. In the miracle here of the feeding of the 4,000, the answer is given by Jesus through his actions, only Jesus can satisfy people. He is the only one that can satisfy. The disciples were looking around for all their earthly human answers. They looked around at their resources. They're standing around here. All right, what do we got? Seven loaves. Doesn't look good. How the heck are we supposed to feed 4,000 people? They were up against much larger odds before at the feeding of the 5,000 plus, you know, the families and then they had like five loaves and two fish. So they're, they're, they're down a couple, you know, loaves at that one. 
and it works out. But here they have two more loaves and they're stressed out. They're relying upon their human wisdom, their human understanding, their human resources. This is exactly what happens with us. When we're going through life with, you know, and and not only with us, but with, with all people, with the human condition, everyone's looking for that satisfaction. Everyone is looking to be satisfied. And so in those times, we try to fill those things with things that we think will satisfy us. This is exactly what happens, you know, when people get caught up in work or hobbies and they invest all of their time there. They spend all of their time there. They're getting deeper and deeper into that because they're trying to find satisfaction and happiness in those things. You know, I was, I was just... Uh, I was just reminded of that this uh, this past week. I was thinking of two examples, and one of them, uh, more clearly, is some of the the older bands. We just had uh, we just had uh, at at the Giants ballpark. They just had Grateful Dead night, and um, they had like a big thing where you know members of the Grateful Dead were there, and they they sang the national anthem together and, you know, they had this big celebration. But over and over again uh, on uh, some of the social media avenues and even some of the Giants players, um, there, was, there was a couple like interviews where again and again and again, it was like the question kept coming up at like this event, who the heck are the Grateful Dead? Like people were just like, I don't even know who that is, you know? And, and, and for that generation who, who grew up with that, who, who invested their time there, now the Grateful Dead are like, you know, to my kids, they have no clue. They don't care. You know, and, and for younger folks, those people who, who have invested their life there, they have, they have nothing. They have, they have no, un, they have no um, you know, credentials or qualifications before people who have no clue who they are. They've invested their time there. They've invested their life there. But when you're validated by other people, when your validation is built upon people knowing how many records you've sold or how influential you were in culture, when that generation passes, all of a sudden you have nothing. In the, in the same way, you know, we see that even just with, um, you know, the, the Olympic coverage that's been going on. They, they kind of keep doing these little vignettes of like the athletes of, of yesterday of, you know, these are the people who are the greatest of all time, you know, doing these little flashbacks. But those people have since passed on. They've been invalidated by someone coming and overtaking their, their, their medal and, and overtaking their records. And now those people, all their achievements, the things that they've built has been invalidated by someone else being better than them. What's happening here, as, as, we look at the text here, we see that only Jesus satisfies. And so we need to be careful that when we're looking to be satisfied, that we find our satisfaction in him. Not that we're receiving from him, but that we're building our life upon him. So that way, when the storms of life come, when we go through tough times, Jesus' love and his, his affection toward us is still there. It doesn't fail us. It can't go away. No one can overtake that. You know, Jesus, Jesus tells us that no one can snatch us out of his hand. And so, therefore, we will always have that love. And, and it can be something that can never fail us because he's faithful to his word to love us. And he's demonstrated his faithfulness to us. And so, it's something that we need to keep in mind as we build relationships with others in our community, in, in school, in our families, that people are looking for satisfaction and they're looking most often in the wrong place. It's, it's often more subtle. It's not to say you can't have any hobbies or you can't have any fun or, you know, do other things. But when your identity is rooted in these other things, it becomes a problem. It becomes an idol. Our identity must be rooted in Christ alone and, and that is where we have to stand. Now, Jesus, he satisfies these people. And then they take up these baskets. The disciples take up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. It, the number here, it, it, 
has its usual connotation, even though we're looking at a Gentile crowd. Mark writes in a way that includes this connotation that the number seven usually has within the Jewish culture of fullness or completeness that that happens. The, the, it's a finality, a work, and and that is rooted in the seven days of creation, where God where God worked for six days to create, and then on the seventh day He rested because He was so completely and thoroughly satisfied with His work that there could be nothing more done to it. And here we have that similar connotation that exists. Additionally, Passover was a feast that lasted seven days. And, and this Passover uh, Exodus typology that, that kind of is overlaid into this feeding here, uh, it lines up very well with it. Now, what happens here is the disciples, they take up this bread and they take up seven baskets full. And then in verse 13, or I mean, excuse me, 10, tells us, immediately he got into the boat with the disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he and he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So after performing uh, his second miraculous feeding to 4,000 people, Jesus gets in the boat, crosses the sea, goes back into a Jewish territory, has his confrontation here with the Pharisees. And it's kind of a funny sort of uh, exchange because basically it's, it's really short. It seems as if Jesus gets into the boat, goes across, here's what they have to complain about, says three sentences, gets back in the boat and jams back out. <laughs> it's, it's like the way that Mark lays it out here, I think is intended to demonstrate, you know, to kind of bring this whole passage together, these three little chunks. And so we'll, we'll, look, at him, uh, we'll look at it briefly here. The first thing that happens is the Pharisees come out against Jesus. The word there that he uses for, for came, it's a hostile meaning. It means as if they came out in military rank, as if they came out as if they were marching towards Jesus, prepared for battle, prepared for war. They're marching out in an intimidating fashion. They're coming against him. And they not only come out to question him, but it says that they come out to argue with him, you know, as they oppose him, really. And here's what they want. They want a sign from heaven. Now, what they're asking for here is a confirmation of Jesus's ministry from God himself. One commentator put it this way. They want outward compelling proof of divine authority. They want like literally God to like do something crazy in the heavens that like Jesus doesn't do. And if you were back in, if we looked back at Jesus's baptism, they missed it. It happened. They missed it. That was like their opportunity for this to happen. God calling out who Jesus was. Now, they didn't miss it because they were there. But here's the deal. They're seeking a sign from heaven. And it says, not just that they're seeking that, but it's to test him. It's really important. It doesn't mean an objective test. They're not seeking to find out like, well, let's like really find out and look into this and gather all the evidence. And then we're going to make a, an educated decision based upon what we've gathered. That's not what they're doing here. It says that they're seeking a sign to test him. What it, what it more accurately means is they're looking for an obstacle or a stumbling block to discredit him with. And so this word here, though, the, the way that they come about him, Mark writes with this, um, with this like Exodus typology that exists. We've looked at it in previous weeks about how, you know, in the, in the last feeding of the 5,000, how it very closely mirrors the children of the wilderness when they were seeking, you know, when they were hungry and they were seeking manna. And now here in our text, we see another opportunity for Mark to demonstrate that through the actions of the Pharisees. We find some of the background here of that in Exodus 17. So turn over there quickly with me. The word that he uses here for test, it's a, it's a multi kind of layered word. It includes um, like ideas, not just of discrediting or making a stumbling block, but it's 
to examine, to tempt, to provoke, really. To, to try to, you know, to cause um, error, really. And so we find this, this background of this in Exodus 17, where the Israelites, they test God in the wilderness. Now, Mark does another thing here. By including this, he, he makes it so that way, in this, in this account that we're going to look at in Exodus, Moses is not the one that's being tested. God is the one that's being tested. And so Mark writes this again to, to parallel that Jesus is the one being tested much like God was. To demonstrate again in the text that Jesus' claim is to be God. Not to be a good human teacher, but he's seeking to tell the whole story of who Jesus is. Exodus 17, starting in verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on, the wilder, uh, on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff which you struck the Nile uh, and go. Behold, I will stand before you and there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, Moses is not the one being tested in the text here. God is the one that's being tested. They quarrel against Moses, but they test the Lord. And when they says that they test the Lord there, they're seeking to discredit Moses. They're not coming in like, you know, they're not coming with, uh, to really find out if God is with them in the wilderness. They're co coming with them for an excuse to return back to Egypt. They're coming at him with, an, with this, uh, uh, this claim of testing the Lord, like he's not really with us, as an excuse to go back to what they wanted, to do what they wanted, to have their own way. And, and here it's, Moses even names the place. He calls it Masa, which means testing, or Meribah, which means quarreling. So the actual names of the places that they were where this happened are named after their sin, after their disobedience. And so the Pharisees here, they're identified with this grumbling wilderness generation. The Pharisees put Jesus under this examination, and it led to a dispute with him. And here's how he responds. He responds with that Exodus typology, calling them that generation. In verse 12, it says, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus says, uh, what Jesus does is he sighs in his spirit. And here's why he does this. He does it because of their request. It, he sighs, it's, it, he's, anxious in his spirit. He's upset in his spirit because they're not coming to him for help. They're not coming to receive from him. They're coming to trap him. He sighs deeply in his spirit because of their rejection, because they already have demonstrated that they don't believe. Their actions have proved that again and again. And here, they're not coming seeking a sign with a pure heart. But he sighs because of the hardness of their heart, because their heart is defiled, because it's wicked. And a heavenly sign that would happen, it wouldn't convince them anyways. By seeking these signs, they discredit themselves. 
because there's already been signs that have happened. They discredit themselves not only because they've seen the, the signs that have been previously demonstrated, but in doing this and seeking a sign even though it's been demonstrated, they identify themselves so closely with this wilderness generation that, I mean, the parallels are, are perfect. The wilderness generation had already seen amazing miracles done by God in the wilderness. He brought the, he, I mean, he, he demonstrated his signs through the, the, the 12 plagues there in uh, the kingdom of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea as they went out. He went before them in a pillar of fire and a, and a, a pillar of cloud. He demonstrated it again and now in the wilderness you know, they're like, show us a sign that you're with us. It's like, I just made food come from nowhere. So what's the problem? The Pharisees here, they're demonstrating that they're of the same heart as this wilderness generation. And here Jesus likens the Pharisees to that generation with his words. Um, That generation, as a result of their disobedience and testing the Lord, they were unable to go into the promised land. They were kept out of the Lord's rest. The psalmist writes of this generation in Psalm 95, uh, he says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put to the proof Uh, Put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Like that evil generation that, that died in the wilderness, that did not enter into the rest of the Lord, like that generation that demanded a sign and, and, and wanted to see God's goodness come to pass as they entered into the land of promise, the Pharisees would not receive that sign either. They had that similar heart as that generation. And, and Jesus calls them out there with that. He calls them that, you know, in that very similar phrasing, why do you, that this generation seek a sign? No sign will be given to this generation. Now, here's the point. It's not that signs should never be requested, because obviously you see things like happen where Gideon was out in the wilderness, and he put out a fleece for the Lord to direct him. He did it a couple times. What's happening here in our text this morning is Mark is showing us that it's, it's pointless for the Pharisees to request a sign because they've already decided in their hard hearts what they believe. They've already decided that they're not going to receive Jesus as a part of God's inbreaking kingdom. They've decided that their way is more important. And so God will not reveal to them any more than what he has already revealed. Think about this. If Jesus had demonstrated a sign to the Pharisees, what would have happened here is exactly what Mark is trying to get away from. People making the type of Jesus that they want. Mark is trying to show the real Jesus, not the Jesus that the Pharisees want. If Jesus had given in to this giving of this sign, he would have been the type of Jesus that they wanted, not the real Jesus who he was, who he came to to be. But this goes further than that because this is exactly what happens with us in our day and age with people we interact with and with ourselves. We make whatever Jesus we want. We make social justice Jesus. You know, we make hippie Jesus, and we recast Jesus in the way that we want. There's good moral teacher Jesus. There's Jesus is my homeboy Jesus. There's all sorts of of versions of the Jesus that we make up. As individuals, as culture, as society, this is exactly what Mark was writing for, the context of unbelief, not knowing who the real Jesus was. And so, we can't ask Jesus 
to show up and give us this sign in the way that we want. Jesus has already given us a sign. He has already shown us who he is through the cross. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrated his love towards us through Jesus, that when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. At the worst time, when we didn't even want to find the real Jesus, when we didn't want the Jesus to appease us, he showed us who he was. He made it abundantly clear who he was. We don't need to see another Jesus because we'll only be making up the one that we want, not the real Jesus. Now, the rejection that happens here with the Pharisees in Jesus, it's, you know, it's really an incredible thing because this is supposedly Israel's elite, the most, you know, in touch with God group of people that they had. But, and here, they overlook who Jesus is, reject Jesus, because they're so, you know, in bondage to their own ways, to the things that they, they want. And so Jesus, not, after just speaking these three little sentences to him, he gets back into the boat and he jets out. In verse 13, he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. The Pharisees, they turn and walk away. The disciples, they get into the boat with Jesus. One commentator, he, uh, I thought he wrapped this up real nicely, the way that he kind of thought about this. The way that faith is demonstrated here in just that little closing phrase. Uh, commentator Edward Schweitzer, he says this, Faith comes when one steps into the boat with Jesus and does not prefer to remain in safety on the shore. I thought that was that was a real good summary of what's happening here. The, the Pharisees, they don't stick around to see what will happen, but they come with an antagonistic attitude. They come to provoke Jesus. They don't get what they want, and then they leave. They're not coming to receive from him, but rather to attack him. But the disciples, although they're blowing it, at least they're sticking around. And they're going to blow up more, as we're going to look at right here. But they're on the way. And Jesus cautions them in this next passage uh, of becoming like the Pharisees. Now, verse 14. They had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So as Jesus, he gets back in the boat. He gets away from an argument with the Pharisees. They're cruising there across, you know, into finally a private session with his disciples where there's not a crowd around. It's like he's been trying to get away with his disciples for like chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters, and he can't even get a moment. And he finally like gets done with arguing. He finally gets into the boat and they're crossing from this western region over into the eastern, you know, northeastern shore. And the disciples are arguing over a loaf of bread. <laughs> it's like, Jesus finally has what he wants. And the disciples are arguing over bread. It's like, they, you know, they forgot their seven baskets full of bread. And they have one loaf. And they're stressed out. And they're here arguing over something just so dumb. And Jesus wants to take this time and speak into their lives. He wants to minister to them and, and help them to show them where they're in error, where they're in danger, and they're concerned about their one loaf. Previously, we looked at the, the feeding of the 5,000, and in the, the passage right after that, it concludes, you know, the disciples blowing it in the boat again, it concludes, you know, after Jesus walks on the water, and they did not understand about the loaves. Like, they got this thing where they're just so focused on themselves that they don't get what Jesus is doing. Jesus warns them. He says in verse 15, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The first verb there that he says in watch out or beware, there's kind of two verbs that he uses in conjunction there. He says the first one is to command this awareness. It's this continual action of, of, of being watchful. The second verb means to perceive by use of the eyes, you know, to beware. But it's used in a metaphorical sense. It's used to mean have discernment mentally, to understand, to, to turn your mind, your attention upon, to take 
uh, heed, to consider. What he's saying here is, is be constantly watchful, keeping an eye open, keep your mind sharp, put your mind's attention upon the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So he's calling them to take heed of leaven. So what is leaven? It's basically, it's, it's a byproduct of a, like yeast, basically. There's, there's yeast, and then you put yeast in a dough and it rises. And then leaven is, is basically um, dough that has yeast introduced to it. And what you would do if you were making leavened bread is you would take, hold back some of your old bread, your old dough that had already had yeast in it and has already, uh, would already, had already risen, and you would take that and you would put it next to uh, just an old piece of dough next to your newer dough. And that would, in time, that older dough that had leaven, in time, would overtake the unleavened bread and it would pass through into uh, your newer dough. And you would constantly be taking this older piece and putting it with the new piece to let that stretch further. But in scripture, leaven is most often associated with sin. It's most often likened to sin. In Galatians 5, uh, verses 7 through 9, Paul, speaking to the Galatians, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from, he, from him who calls you. A li- little leaven leavens the whole lump. What he's saying there is, like, don't let this sin in a little bit. Will, will corrupt all of it, will corrupt all of you. You cannot give in to this. You have to keep yourself free from it. But Jesus is speaking here of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And, and, what, and so he's warning them to be on guard against that. So the Pharisees and Herod, they're like two totally separate groups. But the one thing that they have in common is they hate Jesus. That's basically it. They have disbelief in Jesus. They oppose Jesus, and therefore want to be rid of him. And so what's happening here, when Jesus is warning them, he's, he's telling them, beware of the leaven of, of Herod and of the Pharisees. He's saying that, that you guys are in danger. What's happening, what, what, what goes on with them is it's happening here on the boat right now. This is fermenting among you. You need to be free from this. Now, Jews would use this uh, this idea of leaven as a metaphor uh, for evil inclination or um, you know the disposition of the heart, really that that destructive impulse that existed within the hearts of man. And so when Jesus is warning against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, he's warning them of being infected with the same disbelief that Herod and the Pharisees have. He's warning them of having that hardened heart. He links those two together. And, and it's interesting because just prior to this, Jesus had just got done talking to the disciples about the problem of the heart. And, he, you know, he was talking about the, it's what comes from inside of a man that makes someone unclean and not something that comes in from the outside. He had just gotten done speaking to them of issues of the heart. And so we see the disciples, really, their heart is revealed even more so in their next response. Jesus tells them this statement, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. (laughs) They fail miserably. Jesus is trying to teach them something, to guard them against something, and they blow it. They weren't listening. The disciples are speaking of like a literal type of bread, and Jesus is speaking of this metaphorical type of bread. They're speaking of two totally different types of things. And their misunderstanding of what Jesus is speaking about, it demonstrates how far away they are from what Jesus is actually wanting to teach them. Now, Mark has told this story to underline how miserably the disciples have failed. Remember, he didn't tell this story 
the, it's, not a, it's not a duplication of the feeding of the 4,000 just for the heck of it to show another miracle. It's to show in, in an encompassing way that at the feeding they failed. We see in the middle this demonstration of that heart, the leaven of the Pharisees, and now we see this heart passing on to the disciples. They're being warned against having that heart, and yet they still are, are unaware of the position that they're in. They're too influenced by the thinking of the world. They're too influenced by their own situation and not paying attention to what Jesus is trying to show them. It's a huge danger because they're basically ignoring Jesus's warning. But it's even more dangerous because they're with him. And so by being with him, they pers- they, they're making this presumption that they're with him in mission. They're with him in purpose. That they, you know, oh yeah, we're with you, Jesus. We're around you. But yet, their hearts demonstrate that they don't understand who he is. They don't understand, their, their hearts, you know, reveal that they're not really with him. They're around him, but they're not with him. They're spending time near him, but they're not a part of his mission. It's deceptive. You know, we even see this in the case of, of Jesus's uh, family. Those who, like, you know, Jesus would have grown up with. They come against Jesus earlier in the book of Mark. They come and they're trying to make excuses for Jesus and tell people like he's crazy. Those people who would be like his closest family, even they are not with Jesus in purpose and in mission. And so Jesus responds back to them this way in verse 17. Jesus said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the feeding of the 5,000 and how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And he said, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So Jesus, in response to the disciples' further discussion about how they don't have any bread, he comes back at them, you know, really with a, a pretty intense rebuke here. He, re, he gives out uh, a series of seven questions here. He gives them five that, that kind of are an Old Testament throwback, looking at these different passages and themes. And then he gives them two additional questions that are from their recent history, the two mass feedings. And then finally, he, he ends up with one uh, you know, question to, to call them back to understanding. The first thing that he says is, you know, why, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Like, is there nothing more important than what I just said to you, the fact that you don't have any bread? Like, you're with me, I'm trying to teach you, what's the deal? But then he goes on and he uses these Old Testament themes, these Old Testament throwback questions to, to call, you know, them to attention, things that they would be familiar with. The first one, do you not perceive or understand? It's rooted in Isaiah 40, verse 21. It's about the greatness of who God is. He's trying to recall the, to them, you know, or to point them in the direction. Do you know who I am? Do you remember who I am? In verse, uh, or Isaiah 40, verse 21, he says, it says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's, it's speaking of who God is. Jesus is using this with them because they would be familiar with it. As they heard that, they would know that that chapter was about God saying again and again who he was. He's trying to, rem- to, to, to jumpstart them, to remember, guys, think about who I am. He again says, do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Jesus links those two together. He says, you know, he's demonstrating there that, that the failure to perceive or understand, it leads to this hardness of heart. He, he says, Have, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Those are two prophetic words, you know, or, or, or sentences there that are used against Israel's unbelief. Jesus uses them at, at the root of his, of his rebuke here, calling the disciples back to Israel's unbelief and likening them to that things they would be familiar with. In Jeremiah 5.21, it says, 
Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Ezekiel 12.2, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Now, Jesus asks two further questions about their more recent history. He gives them a little comprehension test. Now, in verse 9, he says, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of uh, broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. I'm sure it was probably like a pretty, like, all together now, but like, ashamed answer. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he said to them, and they said to them, him, seven. So again, Jesus asks, asks them to recall the miracles about how he has provided. He wants them to understand not only is he likened to God, not only are they likened to this unbelieving stiff-necked people, but likening him uh, you know, re- recalling them to these miracles that show that he is the provider. Jesus wants to demonstrate to them that he, the, he's looking for faith, but not, you know, faith that it, that is just built on nothing. He wants something that is based on understanding, on perceiving the words that he says. It's built upon the ways that he has demonstrated who he is to them. It's not an empty faith. It's something that is built upon his faithfulness thus far. And the disciples here, they're, they're, they're rebuked, but it's, it's not that they're rebuked for not believing. It's that they're, they're not seeing and understanding, just like the Pharisees didn't see or understand. They're vulnerable to becoming like the Pharisees. The disciples, they're losing it over like the fact that they have one loaf of bread, but Jesus is upset that they don't demonstrate the faith that they should after witnessing his goodness, witnessing his faithfulness and the things that he's done. Now, Jesus wants them to make this transition from outsiders, those who, who are acting like they have no clue, to those who are insiders, And he wants them to respond on his terms. And so he continues to demonstrate throughout the Gospel of Mark who he is. Now, obviously from our text this morning, it demonstrates that the disciples, they're vulnerable to, to, to falling into the same type of uh, you know, mentality, the same type of disbelief that the Pharisees have you know, so consistently demonstrated, that they're antagonistic Jesus. But here, Jesus wants to transition them from that position of unbelief and to transform them into people who see and hear and understand. He wants to take them from that position. He doesn't leave them or abandon them, but wants to transition them from, from one group of outsiders to a group who are able to do what he has called them to do, who he will equip and send out. Now, he wants to do the same thing with us, transition us from, you know, in spiritual understanding. He wants to, to grow us in spiritual understanding, wants to grow us in a, a more full knowledge of who he is. And, he, and, and so here's a couple ways as we end. Um, that we can develop our faith practically, just through, you know, develop our faith and understanding of who Jesus is. First way, quite obviously, Scripture. It's getting into the Word, both corporately at a Sunday gathering, and then individually as you read your Bible, as you read Scripture, you know, in your own time, as you study the Scripture, the the word of God reveals the heart of God, reveals who Jesus is. Secondly, you know, and these are all things that we find just simply in the early church in Acts 2.42, through fellowship, getting together, you know, corporately and, you know, in your 
normal time, regular life, with other believers who love Jesus and want to love on you. This happens as you gather together in fellowship there, and, and during the course of fellowship, you know, as you share what's going on in your life, as you, as you, you know, let each other sharpen each other, as you share experiences, we develop more spiritual understanding as, you know, as we are to bear one another's burdens, as we're to help one another within the body, to love and serve one another. We're to sharpen each other through, you know, our gifts, but as well uh, as through our own personal experiences, the areas that God has grown us in, in Scripture as we read his word, we're to then use that to encourage one another. And then lastly, through prayer. Again, both corporately and individually. An opportunity to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding through spending time with Jesus in prayer. Now, that one's the easiest one because basically prayer is not coming with a list of stuff that we want done, but rather asking God to take our heart and align it with his heart, to take what we want, to filter it through him, and to come out on the other side with what he wants and not what we want. And so that one, I feel like, is the easiest one to, to develop more spiritual understanding because we're told, you know, in the New Testament that we have not because we ask not. And if we ask according to his will, you know, he hears us and he'll, he'll give to us what we ask. And so when you're asking for what God wants, he always wants to give you what he wants because it's what he wants. And so if you are able to ask in that manner, you always end up with more spiritual understanding, with more wisdom, you know, perceiving what God wants to do because you're submitting yourself to what he wants and not what you want. Allowing yourself to be submitted to the real Jesus and not the Jesus that you want to make up. And so those are the things that, you know, we need to invest in, just like the early church did, um, as a body, as individuals, as we love and serve one another. And so there's a lot to be learned from, you know, our text this morning, just the idea of being near to Jesus and wanting to know him, not just know about him, not to gather information about Jesus, but when we're in the boat with him, to listen because he wants to talk not just to like be on a cruise and be looking around distracted, but to spend that time, quality time with him, you know, to enjoy Jesus, not to make it a task or a duty, but to, to love and chill with Jesus. And so I encourage you to do that. It's awesome. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your willingness to make yourself available to us. Lord, we pray that you would allow us, Lord, to not be distracted, Lord, by the things of this world, much like the disciples were in this passage. Lord, to be with you and have you wanting to, to fellowship with us and to teach us and to, to share with us just great wisdom and and to minister to us, but be distracted by bread. Lord, we don't want to be in that place. And so we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be, to be aware, to be watchful, or as your word says, to be watchful and to be vigilant, to be looking about circumspectly, as Ephesians tells us. We want to walk, Lord, in that way that would allow you to minister to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in that, that we would be submitting not only um, just those moments to you, but our entire lives, Lord, that our entire lives would be lives that are ones of worship and given over to uh, your mission for your glory. We pray that you would 
allow us to see what you're doing, Lord, and that you would prosper our times both corporately and personally, Lord, as we seek you in your word, in fellowship, in prayer. Lord, and we pray that you would, um, that you would allow us to remember you now, to worship you just through uh, communion, Lord, as we receive um, just the, the bread and the cup, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of your faithfulness again, of your, your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to God. We're thankful, Lord, for your goodness and that you never fail us. We love you. Amen. Amen.